Hey everyone, this is Mark, and we are doing something a little different this week, and that's the reason for the informal intro on the front end. I was reviewing some of the changes that we've done recently on the website, and I came across one of our initial episodes that I really thought needed to be re-released. It was only episode number 10, in fact, so that's over 100 episodes ago. But for those listeners out there that haven't been with us since those early days, I wanted to re-release this because it just fits so well with the beginning of the new year. The guest was Harriet Helmley, and she's got a great story, beginning with her accounting career, of course, but also leading into starting a charity at a time that was really of great difficulty in her life. She was really going through a lot at the time, and she founded a charity. It's a wonderful story for those of us that are thinking about what we want to accomplish this year, and particularly if you've had some less than ideal circumstances in your own life. Harriet is truly inspirational. And by the way, this was only episode 10 when we released it originally, so you're going to notice some echo in the background and some sound issues, and I was thinking about trying to take some of that out, but honestly, it's a little nostalgic, so I left it in for now, but please forgive us on that. Here we go with our timeless interview with Harriet Helmley, a CPA in San Antonio that has dedicated just so much of her life to giving back in a meaningful way. are so blessed to be accountants and to have had a great career, to have the opportunities of college and education and continuing education. Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accounts Go podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this episode. For this episode, I have a very special guest to bring you, Harriet Marmon Helmley of Covenant Multifamily Offices. She works in the San Antonio headquarters office for Covenant, and this is a wonderful story, not just of her career, but of giving back to the community. There's a lot of insight for those listeners that may be interested in getting involved in a charity, either as a volunteer or at the board level, or even starting a charity. Harriet's career story would be interesting enough to do an episode on. However, we really delve a lot into some of the adversity that she was facing earlier in her life and the nonprofit that she founded during that time of adversity and struggles that she was going through, San Antonio Youth Literacy. SAYL is an organization that helps fight illiteracy by working with school districts to bring up the level of children's reading ability before it becomes an issue in their lives. This is a wonderful episode. I think there are many gems that you'll get out of it. So without further ado, here's Harriet. Well, 
good morning, Harriet. Welcome to the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. No problem. Well, I approached you about coming on the program because I've heard so many good things about you through contacts in the community and particularly at the CPA Society here in San Antonio in reference to your your efforts to build and, and give back to our local community here. And obviously, you've had a very successful career as well. So I thought your story would be particularly beneficial to our listeners in the accounting community, specifically those that want to get more involved in charitable efforts, because I, mm-hmm. I see that as, as a theme with many professionals. If you don't mind, I think it's always a good idea to get an idea of where people came from. So mm-hmm. I'd like to start on your career a little bit. How did you end up pursuing accounting as a career? Well, that's kind of a, an interesting kind of an interesting story <laughs> because if I go back to my days at the University of Texas, women were not we really weren't given a lot of options in terms of our career. We could be if you liked numbers, which I didn't think I did at the time, but you basically could be a bookkeeper, you could be a teacher. You can get your MRS degree, which I did not get at the University of Texas, uh-huh. but there were just very, very limited opportunities for, for women and certainly in the business slash accounting field. So I started out really on the on the merchandising side of retailing when I graduated and thought that I was going to really enjoy that. And it ended up to be a very different type of environment than what I, how I was raised and what I thought business should be. And I was very fortunate at the time that the CFO at Joskies, which is a lot of people remember Joskies, but a lot of the younger people are not going to remember Joskies. So, but I, I started out there on the executive training program thinking I was going to do the merchandising side. And the controller convinced me not to get out of retailing, but instead to try out the accounting side of it, which is what I did. From there, I went to Houston and applied for a job at Sackwitz. When they asked if I knew enough to be the accounting manager, I very foolishly said, of course I do. <laughs> you know, I can do this. Anybody can, anybody can do this job. Knowing that I didn't have a, had never taken a single course in accounting at all. I knew it was going to be a pretty steep learning curve, but I was, I was never short on confidence back then. So I just plowed on through and gosh, did I learn a lot. I, I learned a tremendous amount. So I was at Sackwitz for quite a while and ended up coming back to San Antonio when I started having some joint problems and bone problems and ended up having to get my hips replaced. And that was the beginning of a a long series of operations trying to correct a, a defect that our family has in our bones. So at the meantime, I took that opportunity while I was recuperating to study for and take and pass the CPA exam. In those days, you could sit for the exam if, if you worked directly for a CPA and they would sign an attestation form that you had worked directly under their supervision for at least two years. I think it was two years. And so I had plenty of accountants, CPAs that I worked for in Houston. Okay. So that wasn't a problem. And of course, they always say, yeah, sure, you can take the exam. Never thinking that you're going to pass it. So I did. (laughs) 
and then I and then I wanted to go back and try to take some courses. So I I did take some postgraduate courses at UTSA in accounting, so that I I didn't have to say I've never had an accounting course. I could then say yes, I've had some accounting courses. So, but so that's kind of how I got into the accounting thing was just sort of by default in the retailing side. And just and loved it. Our whole family has a history of being extremely good in math, and I think that was probably the main thing that intimidated me as a as a youngster, thinking that I could never be as smart as the rest of the family. And believe me, that's still true. You know, I have a cousin who's in Mensa's, and she's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant in accounting and numbers. But anyway, so I started my career really and truly an industry. When I went back to work in San Antonio, I ended up going to work in public accounting as a consultant and loved the public accounting side and did that until, gosh, 1992, I think it was, when I was working with Pricewaterhouse at the time. It was kind of like, well, you know, you're at that point in your career where you can either go to New York and end your career there, or you can go to work for a client and go back to industry. And I quickly decided to go to go back to work in industry rather than, than go to New York. I had no desire to go to New York. I mean, as a visitor, yes, but certainly not to live. So, so fast forward, that trip took me into the financial world of investments. I followed up and got my CFP, and so I've been doing that kind of work ever since. And so here I am. In fact, at one point, my husband said, somebody asked him if I was going to get, I already got CPA and CFP. They said, well, what are you going to do next? And he said, if she gets any more initials behind her name, she's going to lose those three initials in front of her name because I am so tired of being the weekend widow, (laughs) and I have to do all of the housework and everything else, you know, because all you're doing is studying. <laughs> and that was true for the, probably the first five or six years, almost 10 years of our marriage. That's all I did was study. So so wow. here we are. Here we are today. Hard to, hard to believe looking back all those years. But it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. And you're at Covenant Multifamily Offices now. Correct. What is your role there exactly? I have the best job in the whole world because my my title is Client Relations which is a pretty broad, encompassing title, but I can't think of anything that I enjoy more than working with clients and working with their families and making sure that they're happy, making sure that we're providing the services that we need to be providing to these families, working with with their kids, their grandkids, looking at things that, that impact family governance, just so much in terms of making sure that our families are well taken care of and that we're providing a top quality service to each one of them. I love getting up in the morning. I I don't ever dread coming to work. And I've had a couple of jobs where I dreaded coming to work. But I always tell people that are starting out, if you can't be passionate about what you're doing and you can't be happy to get up and come to work every day, you're in the wrong job. (laughs) You need to find something 
that is going to get you in that space. Marty Winder's a great example of somebody that says, I love getting up. I love Mondays. You know, people look at him like, you're crazy if you love Mondays. Well, I love Mondays too. I, I think just can't wait to get the week started. It's, it's so much fun. So I, I love what I do. I'm sure that fits you very well because your job is to make sure that you're providing the, the service that your customers need and that you've promised. And that, that probably fits your your, your personality very well, I would, I would suspect. <laughs> Abs- absolutely. Yeah, it also allows me to do the things in the community that I'm very passionate about because part of what we like to do is to make sure that our clients are giving back as well. And so that's, a, that's an important part of this job is to be out in the community, to be a leader in the community, and to make sure that we're connecting our clients to the community and helping them to give back as well. Okay. Well, that, that's, that's a great transition. That's exactly where I was going with this. I know many CPAs and accountants that are involved with charities in terms of serving and even serving on the board. And I don't know many that have actually founded a charity, though, and as they were continuing to develop their careers. So tell us about San Antonio Youth Literacy and how all that came about. Well, Santa Youth Literacy is sort of an interesting dynamic organization and how it really came about, you know, I was talking earlier about having some some bone issues coming back from, I had Mayo Clinic did the surgery on my hips initially and I started having problems with those surgeries almost immediately after getting back in San Antonio. And I'd already been uprooted from Houston where I had a pretty good career going, loved what I did, had my circle of friends, had to move back to San Antonio because I just, my parents could not take care of me from a distance. And I just wasn't able at that time to take care of myself. So when I came back to San Antonio after the surgery and realized that I was going to be facing a lot more surgery to fix the problem, I got, as most people do, you you get a little down on the dumps. Well, I got super down on the dumps. The blessing was that when I was sent back to San Antonio, they referred me to the Health Science Center at the time. And there was this young just real smart-ass orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> There's no other way to describe him because if you ask anybody about Dr. Jesse DeLee, Jesse Clyde DeLee, they will tell you that his bedside manner is horrible. And I would agree with him that his bedside manner is horrible. But you won't find a more committed, dedicated physician in this community than Jesse DeLee. Well, he had had about enough of my little pity party. And so I was visiting with him one day as a follow-up, and he gets up and he slams the door shut. And he says, you know, he said, you ought to be on your knees every day thanking God for all the blessings that you have. And I'm looking at this kid and I'm going, blessings? You think my life is a blessing? I said, I'm I'm not getting this, doc. So he gave me an assignment and he said, for 30 days, I want you to write down the name of one person every day or a family. I want you to identify somebody that you would not trade places with. And if time and money were no object, then what would you personally do 
to make their life better. And so this went on for 30 days, Mark, and I'm telling you, it was it was a lesson in humility. <laughs> it really made me stop and think about how lucky I was. But the thing that all of these people, all 30 names had in common, none of them could read. All 30 of them and the people around them were basically illiterate. They couldn't read. They couldn't function in society that, and especially in the society like we have today where you've got computers and there's so much technology and, you know, this is, these are people that have just been totally left behind. And in large part, they've been left behind because our public schools have not kept up and have not provided the type of learning environment that these kids need. They, they need more than the average kid. They don't need less. They need more. And so that really was sort of the genesis of San Antonio Youth Literacy. I was also doing a lot of public speaking for the chamber at, at schools, talking about the free enterprise system. And it was real apparent to me that these kids had no idea what the free enterprise system was about. They had no idea. They, they just could There was no connect there. It was a complete disconnect. So, I, you know, I asked the chamber, why am I? I'm just spinning my wheels. I'm talking to these kids. And most of them can't even speak English much less understand the free enterprise system. So all of this sort of came to a head in 1984 when we launched a program to work with high school kids. And we started at Edgewood High School. Henry Cisneros was a big factor. He introduced me to Jimmy Vasquez, who was the superintendent of Edgewood at the time. And, of course, Henry thought it was hilarious because he's – and he tells people all the time, he said, I saw this little blonde girl, and she's like, she's from the north side. What does she know about illiteracy? What does she know about about schools? And, what you know, this is just not her world out there. But I think I even surprised Henry at my stubbornness, and, and I'll call it stubbornness. I was determined that we needed to do something and we needed to give these kids a chance, even if it was a last-ditch effort. We needed to kick in and help them master some skills. And so that's what we did. We focused on the high school freshmen, sophomores, turned them into what we called leaders. They would be organized in groups of leaders and they would be working with their peers. And so it was sort of a peer mentoring, tutoring concept using video equipment, which all the kids wanted to use the video equipment. And it's interesting because, you know, I don't even know how to use a video camera, but these kids could come in and they couldn't, most of them could not read, but they knew how to work that video camera. I mean, when it came to technology, they were more adept at, at working these things than I was with all of my college education and certifications. It didn't do me any good because I, I didn't have a clue how to, I didn't even know how to turn these things on. So it's, so it just reinforced to me that we could do more to help these kids at least reach some level of functioning literacy. We, Ended up, and I'm thinking it was in the late 80s maybe, that we switched from high school 
that we switched over to the first graders, first and second graders, and turned Centenese Literacy into a real reading program. That was done by Shelley Bennett McCullough, Frank Bennett's daughter, who ironically used to be the publisher of the light newspaper, and now he's in New York and involved with the Hearst Corporation. So her family comes by this whole literacy thing. They're extremely literate and lots of emphasis on the ability to read because if they can't read, they can't read the paper. They can't read the Bible. They can't, they can't read a lot of things. So they can't even do a bus schedule to get them from point A to point B. So anyway, so Shelley started, got that started where our focus changed to the youngsters. There were a lot of issues with the high schoolers, and they were all of a sudden the schools had all these privacy restrictions. I'm not sure what was causing a lot of that, but but that created a lot of problems for us because it made it virtually impossible to identify the kids that really needed to be in the program. So we made that big that big shift over to first and second graders, and that part of it is working beautifully. It's still thriving. We can always use more volunteers. We could use easily another 7,000 volunteers to help with the kids. It's going to take an effort that big to really make a dent in the problem. So that's how SAIL got started. It goes back to that nasty old Jesse DeLee with his bad bedside manner telling me that I was acting like a baby and I better get my act together (laughs) and do something (laughs) with my life. And so I was like, okay, whatever. (laughs) And he was right. He was absolutely right. We all need somebody like that at some point in our life. So where is... Antonio Youth Literacy now. I wanted to call it sale. I'm not sure. Do you, you can call, I think you can call it sale, right. Just uh-huh. okay. yeah. I think you can say S A Y L sale. That's, they know that. Yeah. Okay. It, Where is it, it today? Oh gosh. We are I'd have to go look to see how many schools we're in a lot of schools. Okay. We are in, I believe, every elementary school in the San Antonio Independent School District. We okay. are also in some schools in Northeast, North Side, I think Harlandale. I don't know all the different districts, but I think I think almost every district we've got schools, but our focus is really every elementary school in San Antonio District because each one of them are Title I schools, which means they're almost 100% of the kids are eligible for free lunch. So when you've got that level of poverty in in the school, you're you're going to have a lot of issues. The big issues is that there's no English spoken at home in most of the cases, and so there's no books in the house. There is no one to help the kids with their homework. There's no one to help them learn to read. Many, many, many of them do not ever get into some sort of a pre-K program or a kindergarten program where that could help reinforce the reading and learning the alphabet and learning their numbers like so many kids. I have a two-year-old nephew, and he's already reading. You know, he's reading, he knows his numbers, he knows his letters, and he's two, actually two and a half. And my friends' kids and grandkids that are around that age, they all enter the first grade already reading. So the kids that are entering first grade that can't read, it takes not a tremendous, it's surprising, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to get them up to a reading grade level. Volunteers go in once a week, literally for an hour, 
and they work with the kids for the entire school year. And by the end of the school year, the vast majority of these kids are already reading at third grade level. And what happens, Mark, in the third grade, kids no longer are learning to read, but they're reading to learn. So if they haven't made the effort by third grade to be at that reading level, they get left behind so quickly. And we know for a fact that 87% of those kids that go into third grade not reading at grade level, 87% will drop out of school. That's a huge number, a huge number. And it's a number that we should not, we should not permit that. My gosh, 87% is amazing. It is. It's it's really sad. So the number 7,000, you said if you had... You could always use more volunteers. You could use 7,000 more. That sounds like a very specific number. What would that allow you all to do? So we've got about 1,500, maybe closer to 2,000 now. We know that the number of kids in San Antonio today, and this number may be a slight bit outdated, but not by much. If anything, it's gone up. But we know that there are approximately 9,600 kids in San Antonio that are at Title I schools that are in first, second grade that are not reading at grade level. So that's a big number. And if we had another 7,000 volunteers, just think about the impact we could have if the majority of that 9,600 kids, if they were able to go into third grade reading at third grade level, that would be huge. That, that, would, just, that would just put it over the top. And the more we can do, the more we can mentor and tutor these kids. And it, it just has to be a one-on-one effort. That's why the schools, they, don't, they can't do it. You've got a teacher in a class that's got maybe 30, 35 kids in it. And if you've got, say, 25 of them that aren't reading at grade level, that teacher cannot spend the kind of time necessary to tutor that child, all 25 of them. And I'm suggesting that there's more than 25. If you've got a class of 30, 35, you're probably looking at 29, 28 people, kids that are not reading at grade level. And so it almost has to be done by a volunteer. The schools can't afford to hire that many people. If they could, it'd be great, but they, but they can't. And it would be disruptive. So we bring the kids out of class later in the day so that it's not as disruptive to the class. And so we spend an hour a week with them, and we could stagger those meetings Monday through Friday. We don't have to have them all on the same day, and that would help the school a lot. But it's just going to take that many volunteers in order to reach the the vast number of children that we need to reach in this city. I'm sure in all these years, you have a lot of good memories of positive things that have come out of this, but is there any one specific memory that sticks out in your mind of of how you saw the youth literacy program making a difference in someone's life? 
Gosh, I, I hardly even know where to begin on that one. And it is harder with the with the young ones because you don't, you know, we're trying to track all of those kids as they go through school, but it's virtually impossible because they move from one district to the other. They move out of town. It's a pretty transient population that you're that you're working with on the younger ones. The older ones that were in the first programs. I even see some of those kids today. There was one young man named Patrick Flores, not the archbishop, no relationship <laughs> to the archbishop, but he and his family, we, we spent a lot of time. He was in the very first program, and I can remember when his parents decided they would go back and get their GED because it was important to their kids. You know, if their kids were going to graduate from high school, then they wanted their parents to graduate from high school. So our board took up a collection and bought Patrick's parents, each of them, their senior high school, their high school senior ring. And we were there when they walked across the stage at the same time their son Patrick did to get his diploma. And I think that's probably one of the most moving experiences. I mean, there, there are so many that I can, that I can recall and a couple of them kind of sad, but most, for the most part, they were happy, wonderful, wonderful experiences. Anyway, Patrick went on to start a restaurant called Las Enchiladas. And I think I heard through the grapevine that he has subsequently sold that. So I don't know. I'm going to have to try to track him down. He usually surfaces somewhere somewhere down the road. He, our paths seem to cross pretty regularly. There was a Gracie Martinez, and Gracie is now, I think she's an assistant principal, if not a principal by now, in the Edgewood School District. And she was my specific mentee through through her years at Edgewood High School. And so I'm just so proud of her. I ran across another young lady that was at Burbank High School who is now a named partner at a major law firm in San Antonio. And when I was reintroduced to her, she said to me, we were having lunch, a friend, a friend of mine who actually hired her, heard the story about San Antonio's literacy and set up a lunch for us. And so I just thought it was a nice, friendly little lunch. And during the lunch, she said, you don't remember me, do you? And I'm looking at this lady and I'm thinking, you know, how many thousands of kids have I watched now over the years? And I said, you know, I apologize. I am so sorry, but I don't. Uh, So tell me, when did our paths cross? And she said, well, I was at a real point in my life where my parents were pressuring me to drop out of high school and come help the family. And she said, you sat me down and said, if you will stick with your education and get your high school diploma and then try to go on to college, because she was so bright. She's just such a bright young lady. And I said, you will be able to help them tenfold times more than you can help them right now today. I said, if you drop out today, you're going to be, you know, a waitress, a cook, or doing something, but you're never going to have the earning power that you'll have as a, as a college grad. And she said, because of that talk, 
she went on to to go to college and and then today now she's a named partner in this law firm and providing very well for her family thank you <laughs> so that's so that was a that was another one i mean there's just there's so many stories so many. and there's yeah and and I run into people all the time. I'll be in a grocery store, and somebody will run up to me, and they'll go, Miss, Miss, do you remember me? <laughs> you know, and unfortunately, I have to say the same thing, that, you know, unless I see them on a regular basis, I, it's it's hard to remember all of them, but I remember collectively that it's just the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life, and more so than a career, more so than than anything else that that I've ever done is is starting San Antonio Youth Literacy. I, and I hope it continues, and I hope it continues to give back to San Antonio because so far it's done a pretty good job. That is wonderful. I, I could talk to you about this all day. It's just such a beautiful story. I, I could too. Um, <laughs> I could too. <laughs> I think we, we probably have a lot of the listeners convinced that they should look this up. If someone wanted to be one of those 7,000 more volunteers that you'd like to get. 299-1533. Right. Right. Deborah, Deborah Valdez is the executive director. But whoever answers the phone would be happy to help. Or they have you can go to the website, SantoYouthLiteracy.org, and you can and out. you can look look them up that way. It is probably also I haven't looked it up this way, but it probably is SAYL.org as well. Okay. And they could and then that will that will start the process and that will connect them with the director of, of volunteers. And they have an excellent training program and it's not a long one, it's pretty short. They for obvious reasons, everybody has to pass a background check. So sure. there you go. <laughs> if you don't want to take a background check, don't bother to call because because you're dealing with kids, you're dealing with little children and so we have a responsibility to know that, that all of our volunteers are safe, I guess you'd say. Being it is just going to all the CPAs, I'm not terribly worried about it considering considering all the ethical requirements that we have and all the things that we have to attest to when we renew our license. So I'm not terribly worried about CPAs, but unfortunately, everybody has to go through the background check. But it's not bad. Sure. sure. Well, I know we, we can't go into quite as much detail about other charities, but are there any other charities or upcoming events you'd like to highlight? The podcast is going to be released in the second week of December on the schedule uh-huh. at this point. So is there anything coming up in the new year or around Christmas or anything else you'd like to highlight in the charitable arena? Well, there's so many there's so many good charities and there's so many charities at this particular point in time. I mean I would I put out a plea I mentioned earlier about, about books. San Antonio Youth Literacy, if you don't have time to volunteer right now, I know a lot of a lot of the audience is gonna get ready to go into busy season here and but think about donating books that we can provide books to kids to take home for Christmas and keep in the keep in the home. So and there again the website and sale the staff can direct people to donating 
or just donate cash and we can buy the books, but we need to get books into the homes. Having said that, Haven for Hope is is another great charity that we're real involved with. Our company does a lot with Haven for Hope and we put on a a Christmas cookie party every year for Haven for Hope and, and they certainly need donations at this time of year. All of the charities do. It's There's never an abundance of money on any of the charities that I've been involved with the Children's Shelter, obviously, Girls Inc., Girl Scouts, all of these are great, great organizations, and they do a lot with kids. You know, the Boys and Girls Club haven't been as involved with that, but I'd say anything to do with kids. I mean, think about these, these are, this is the future of our city, of our country, and everything that we do today is going to come back in spades for us. Make the effort, make the investment today because it it pays off. But especially this time of year is such a, if you are a family that has no means, it's very difficult when other kids in the school are celebrating Thanksgiving and having big turkey feasts at home and having presents under their Christmas tree. Think about the homeless kids that are living at Haven for Hope that don't have a tree in their room and they don't get presents and they don't have an opportunity to go Christmas caroling or sit down and eat a big meal. They they do eat well, and I will say the food bank does an excellent job at preparing meals for Haven for Hope. And that's another good organization, especially this time of year. They try to make sure that families have a good Thanksgiving, have a good Christmas, and that the kids have plenty to eat as the kids move away from school for their Christmas break. There again, if the kids have been eating the meals, free meals at school, then we've got to think about what do they eat now that they're home for a few weeks. They won't have the same type of nutritious meal. So the food bank is is another great cause and a great opportunity to participate. So there's never there's never a shortage of participation, Mark. I mean it doesn't it just depends on what your interest is and, and mine is children because they are the future of San Antonio and we will reap what we sow, literally. And if we if we don't help out, then whatever happens is going to be our fault for not helping. So I encourage people get involved, please. Yes. Well, I did something a little different for this episode because I had some lead time. I emailed the people that subscribe to the podcast via email to see if they had any questions for you, not by name, but I just told them that I was going to be interviewing uh-huh. a very involved individual and you know, in terms of the, the community involvement. And so I got a couple questions back, and I'm okay. going to give them both to you at the same time. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, just be, and I, I'm sure you'll you'll have an easy time with these questions. Sorry Maybe to so. With them, but it makes it more fun. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first one, the first one comes from a, a younger professional just getting their career started, and and that one is, what advice would you have for finding? an appropriate nonprofit board to serve on. And and then the second one is sort of along these lines. What kind of time commitment can you expect when serving 
on the board of a nonprofit. And that, that comes from someone in public accounting. So you can mm-hmm. certainly understand the reason for that question. Sure. Oh, yes. Like I said, we're about to go into busy season. So there you go. And, and I would say I'll sort of answer them in a backwards way. I'll answer the second question first. Most nonprofits are going to be are they're going to work with you and they're going to work with your schedule. I mean, as long as you're honest with them and explain that there will be times during the year when you can't be as active and they will certainly understand that. And if they don't, then it's probably not the right organization for you to get involved in if they don't care about your schedule. Most really good nonprofits understand that your schedule is up and down and up and down and so they're going to work with you. As to what to do to get involved, I I think it's thinking about what are you passionate about? What do you care about? Is it children? Is it animals? Is it old people? Is it sick people? I mean, so you have to really kind of, and it may be that you have to do a couple of things out there. One good way to get involved with a community as a whole and kind of, I guess you'd say, take an inventory of what's out there, and that could be United Way because United Way is always looking for accountants. They are looking for accountants to serve on panels. They certainly understand your work schedule and can work around that for you, but they are always needing good accounting people to come in and and be involved with the panels when they're reviewing the nonprofits that they support. They need the accountants to go in and actually do an analysis of the financial statements. So it's really doing sort of the same things you do every day. And, And I did that early on. And I was able to get kind of an overview of the community and what was out there in terms of organizations. So as you're reviewing these organizations, it gives you an inside look and you have a better chance of finding something that you're real passionate about. But having said that, I'll throw out another option if somebody is interested. Our company, Covenant, was responsible for bringing a group to town called Social Venture Partners. So we're actually involved in, I'm involved in starting another nonprofit in San Antonio, (laughs) but this one's going to be a lot different. Social Venture Partners started 20 years ago in Seattle, and San Antonio is the 40th city out of nine countries to actually start a chapter. And a partner contributes $5,000, which is a lot of money. I understand that. It's $5,000 a year. And they agree to contribute their human capital. So we are in the process because we're brand new. We have not we have not picked a charity at this point. We're in that process now. And we will probably be in that process till probably early 2017. But at some point we're going to select a charity that we want to work with. And the whole idea behind that is that it's not as much about the money as it is the human capital that you bring to the table. Just like accountants can bring tremendous resources to United Way, you could also do this with social venture partners because we will need people that have a background in financial statements, budgeting forecasting, all of these different things to help nonprofits in San Antonio. And and the whole idea is that we want to help a lot of nonprofits by the time 
we're up and really running with a lot of people. We want to be able to reach more nonprofits and help the good ones scale up. So if they're doing a good job now, we want to make sure that we can help them scale up to do a magnificent job at solving some of our great social problems in San Antonio. So our focus will only be San Antonio and San Antonio nonprofits. And they can reach me by going to SVP, Social Venture Partners, SA.org. Or they can also look at our website, which is svpsa.org is our website. I am at Harriet. My email is Harriet at svpsa.org is where my email is to go to Social Venture Partners. So that's that would be something that I would love to sit down and talk with anybody that wants that wants to listen. <laughs> I will talk to them. <laughs> Wonderful. And actually it sounds like that's a good opportunity for somebody to talk to their employer about right. organizational involvement. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Because we do that 5000 we do take that in the form of a corporate check. Take it in terms of writing a check or credit card. Well, yeah, we can do credit cards even. We are housing the money at the San Antonio Area Foundation for transparency purposes. They are doing all of the back office and all of the accounting and all of the investing. And that keeps it so we have this sort of a, a firewall between Covenant, what we do, and what the Area Foundation does. That was really important to all of us was that we did have a lot of transparency there on where the money was going. And they have to approve, their group has to approve any disbursements that we make out of that fund. So that also gives some oversight, which which gives me a lot more comfort on that as well. But there's lots of opportunities and we're just getting started, so it's it's going to be a lot of fun. And I am certainly cognizant of busy season and schedules and willing to work with people that have, have to work around their schedules. We start the events it's 5.30 in the afternoon and go to 6. We call it our happy half hour. And then sit down and actually start having our meetings at 6, 6.15 and try to wind things up by 7.30 so that people can still get home in time to tuck the kids in. Or the dog, is <laughs> in my case. <laughs> well, that's a great answer. Thank you. I'm sure they're going to appreciate that. Well, to wrap it up, I close out every podcast with the same four questions for every guest. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel funny after our conversation asking you this first one, but <laughs> what has been your proudest moment? <laughs> I would say that probably the proudest moment was probably the first San Antonio Youth Literacy class when these kids had produced a video that they worked on all summer. And the title of the video was, How Do I See San Antonio and How Does San Antonio See Me? And the insight that these kids put together in that video was probably, I just, I don't think I'll ever recover from that. It was so, I was so proud of them. Their parents packed this little room. The city council gave us a a meeting room to meet in. We didn't think any parents would come. We didn't think anybody would come. And apparently Henry Cisneros had put out the word and we were packed. And the parents were there, and we had moms and dads looking at the work that their kids had done. And we had parents literally in tears. And I didn't, couldn't understand them, but Henry was there translating for me, and he was saying that 
the parents had never seen their kids so excited about school and about doing something for the school. And it was their summer that they gave up. All of that summertime that they came to class every single day in the summertime. And the parents were just overwhelmed. And that, so that first class of Santonese literacy, I just, I, I have so many memories from that. And I just, I don't think I'll ever, I don't think I'll ever recover from that. It was just so magnificent. Mm, that is wonderful. Well, on the flip side, I guess, tell us about a mistake you've made and, and what you learned from it, of course. And, Frankly, the more colossal, the better. <laughs> Aside from some of the men I used to date, that was pretty bad. <laughs> we'll save that for a different episode. <laughs> we'll save that one. For, yeah, that'll be the adult version. Gosh, I'd have to really think about that. I, I know that I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, a lot of mistakes. And I would say... Actually, just learning from your mistake, you know, don't make the same mistake the second time. You've got to be able to learn from those mistakes, and that requires a certain amount of humility. So I like to tell people, don't take yourself so seriously and have a little sense of humor about things because you are going to, you are going to make mistakes. You're going to screw up. You're going to mess up in front of a client. You're going to mess up in front of your kids. You're going to mess up in front of your, your parents. And I, I did a lot of that. <laughs> and so in fact, there's probably several things that I could say, but I really can't say them in public on things that I did where I really messed up bad. But I, I always tried to learn from it. I tried to make everything a learning experience for me and to say, don't do that again. And this is why you don't want to do it again. I know that's not really answering your question, but I think it's because I, I don't really look, look at things as being negative. I look at them as being that opportunity to learn something from it as opposed to not learning from it. Then, then it really is a mistake and you don't want to dwell on that, I don't think. That's a good lesson. It really is. Yeah. In terms of your career, when I say Mm -hmm. the word mentor, who -hmm. comes to mind? Career-wise, I would have to say John Eady, the gentleman that I work for today. He is such a blessing, really, and he's a blessing from God. And he has helped me realize that God is going to be a real part of my life. And that actually started back with Dr. Jesse DeLee. I mean, he really brought me front and center there on the personal side. But John Eady, professionally, I've never worked for anybody that was that professional, that, and yet still very dedicated to his family, dedicated to his faith, allows us to exercise our faith in our work. That nobody does that, you know. They're they're also afraid of being politically incorrect. I guess is probably the the best way to say that. And and John isn't. He doesn't care what you think. He's being politically incorrect. You know, if it's your faith, it's your faith, and you should be able to not have to hide that. I think we get we get overly sensitive on so many things now instead of I go back eight learn from your mistakes don't try to bury them learn from them put them out there this is what I did own up to it learn from it and move on don't dwell on it don't be a victim I've gone through the the whole women's liberation thing 
back when I, my very first job, you know, they even asked if I was planning to have babies anytime soon. Well, yeah, they, they can't ask that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there again, you learn from it. You learn from these things and you, and you move on. I've seen the pendulum swing back and forth and it, and it just almost boomerangs because it can, it can go back too far the other way. You know, we need to stay kind of in the middle, and that's a hard. That's a really hard thing to do. It's a hard. It's a hard line to follow, but John Eady follows that line so so beautifully. I mean, and he gives back. I mean, he he leads by example, and he expects all of us to give back. It just comes with a job description with him, and yet professionally, he's probably one of the smartest people that I know. He's a CPA, CFP. CFA, PFS, SEMA. I know there's some other <laughs> some other initials I'm missing in there, but I mean he's just he's just truly the smartest person I know. But he's also one of the most humble people. I mean you just don't meet people as humble as he is. And so it's a, it's a hard combination to find. But there he is. That's him. Apparently, John's spouse had a little different thought process on the letters behind your name than your husband. <laughs> I was, that, that, I was, that, wasn't, that wasn't John's spouse. It was one of our good friends that said, if you go for more initials behind your... Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Because they yeah. told me, if you want... If you want yeah, she had a different view on that. Well, I don't know that he asked her, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> uh, Beth is also a very, a very accomplished teacher for many, many years. And now, actually, we're blessed because she's working with us. She's working oh. with, with some of our big clients. And so it's sort of a real career shift for her, you know. To, but, yeah, she obviously didn't get into the initial thing. I totally missed that. <laughs> Mark. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's hard being an accountant and trying to be funny at the same time. So you <laughs> are talking about you are myself. So correct. You know, you are so correct. It is. It is difficult because most people don't think that we even have much of a personality. <laughs> so, and I, I often get that question: Are you sure you're really a CPA? <laughs> I said yes. <laughs> so, well. You've shared a lot of pieces of advice. The last question I ask everybody is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Is, is there anything else on your mind that you'd like to highlight? I think the best piece of advice just ties into everything else that, that I've been saying, and that is, one is be yourself. Don't try to be somebody that you're not. Being yourself, you can also be passionate about our community and about the people in our community that, that need our help because we are so blessed to be accountants and to have had a great career, to have the opportunities of college and education and continuing education. We get our 40 hours a year and some people don't, you know, they're doing good to get 40 hours in a lifetime. And so we have, we have so much to share out there and there's there's not a shortage of people that need our attention and our help so try to just open your heart and let somebody in that needs your help there's so many areas that you can pick from 
So just when you do decide something, just be passionate about it and allow yourself to be passionate about it. Sometimes we have to feel like we have to hold ourselves back and we have to be, you know, CPAs don't act like that. Well, that's not true. They do. And we need to continue to show the world that CPAs have big hearts and they have generous employers and we have generous people that want to help others. And and I just think that gives the profession a great name. We've already got a great name, but I think compassionate is another word that I would like to attach to CPAs. Maybe that can be one of the new... I guess abbreviations for <laughs> yes. Well, it be, it beats the one that I first heard, which the CPA stood for cutting, pasting, and attaching, which is in go. the olden days that's what we did because we didn't have computers, so we would have to cut the ending balance off of the spreadsheet and tape it up to the beginning it to you know that was your beginning balance on the new set of worksheets so most people don't have never seen a columnar pad or <laughs> those those old kind of worksheets that we had but that's that's literally what they called us was cutting basting and attaching so <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure we could come up with something a little bit better and a little more in tune with the times <laughs> Well, wrapping it up, I know you've already given us your your social venture partner's email address. Is there any other contact information you'd like to give in case anybody wants to get a hold of you for that or, or any other you know, charitable endeavor? Does, uh, the email, harriet.helmley at covenantmfo.com. The emails are probably the most efficient way to do it. I do answer my own phone. But a lot of times I'm on it, like right now. So, you know, I I tend not to try to juggle three or four calls at the same time. But I'm pretty easy to track down, actually, through either one of those emails, either through Harriet at svpsa.org or harriet.helmley at covenantmfo.com. Either one of those. And I do eventually answer every email. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. And just just for our listeners, Harriet has two R's and one T. I made that mistake earlier. Two R's (laughs) R's and one T. T. That's right. But it doesn't matter. I'm not real picky. (laughs) But if you try to do the email thing, you better get just the one T and the two R's. So otherwise, it would kick back. That's right. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you sharing your time with us. Mark, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity, and I hope we get a lot of passionate CPAs out there that are ready to jump in and volunteer. Yes, yes, me too. I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Harriet. Thanks, Mark. You call back anytime. Well, once again, that was Harriet Helmley, and I hope you enjoyed listening to the episode as much as I did getting it ready for you. Since it had been over two years since we originally aired the episode, I have forgotten what an interesting story Harriet has and just how truly inspiring Harriet is. She's a great lady. Well, if you haven't yet visited us online, our web offerings have changed quite a bit. We now have a couple publications specifically for employers on topics related to successfully hiring accounting talent. And we have our book, 49 Tips for a Successful Accounting Career, available for direct purchase through our website now and for immediate delivery instead of going through a third-party site. You could still get it on Amazon and via Kindle, of course, but if you like a paperback copy and you like it mailed out immediately, order it on our site at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. 
Oh yes, and we also we also have a blog that we recently launched as well, and that's purely career related also. So please check that out on the website as well. Once again, that's www.whereaccountantsgo.com. Well, thank you to everyone for joining us. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.